It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello and welcome to Government vs. the Robots, the fortnightly podcast that takes a look at how technology will affect politics in the future. I'm Jonathan Tanner, and this week I'm going to be talking to Nicola Temple. Nicola is the author of the book Best Before, which looks at the evolution and future of processed food. We recorded this conversation out on the road in Bristol, so things might sound a little different to what you're used to. But listen out for a conversation about the challenges test tube meat might pose to the vegetarians of the future, a peek behind supermarket branding and the emergence of fake farms, and finally a discussion about the practicalities of printing pizza. My name is Nicola Temple, and I am a science writer. And what have you written? <laughs> I've written the book uh, Best Before, uh, most recently, The Evolution and um, Future of Food Processing. And prior to that, I also wrote a book uh, called Sorting the Beef from the Bull, The Science of Food Fraud Forensics, so about food fraud. Okay. And before we get into sort of talking about some of the specifics, the substance of what we're mm-hmm. going to talk about today, um, I'm a bit of a foodie. Yeah. So can I ask what your uh, what was the first meal you remember cooking for anybody else? Oh, that's a good question. Uh, I would say that I probably baked before I cooked. So uh, classic. 80s, 70s, 80s child, and that I had an easy bake oven, and uh, so you made little cupcakes or something. I can't quite recall what it was in this little tiny, tiny oven. Yeah, but I grew up on a small farm, so food was definitely a part of my childhood. You know, preparing food and preserving all of the produce from the farm. And are you a big restaurant eater, or are you a big home eater? A uh, big home eater. I would probably love to eat out in restaurants more, but the uh, bank account doesn't quite uh, <laughs> allow that to happen. So, yeah, we spend a, I spend a lot of time cooking at home. So we're going to talk about food and the future of food and how that might get political. Mm-hmm. Um, but I guess, first off, it probably makes sense to talk about how food is already political mm. or has always been political. Is that a fair assumption? That is a fair assumption. You know, right from the very beginning where, you know, governments were responsible for sort of putting in weights and measures and making sure that consumers weren't getting duped by food manufacturers, that's they have a responsibility to provide safe and nutritious food to their citizens. So right from the get-go, it's a political thing. And of course, now with our extremely complex food systems, Food is crossing many international barriers, so it's political in that sense as well. 
and I mean, going back in history, there were there were battles fought over places that had food resources that we really wanted. You know, the island of Manhattan was traded for a, a Polynesian, an Indonesian island that had nutmegs. So, yeah, obviously, it's a very political topic. Funny enough, I read a book called Nathaniel's Nutmeg. Oh, really? Uh, which is all about the tale of the nutmeg and, and how yeah. Manhattan ends up wrapped up in it, which yeah. I would recommend to anybody who's okay. listening to From a layperson's perspective, thinking about food is obviously so much, a, it's such a massive industry. It's a part of everybody on the planet's daily life, apart from a very unfortunate few. And so it's, I guess it's inevitable that food relates to how we talk about health and that's obesity here in the West and increasingly in the rest of the world. Or we talk about climate and we think about livestock and contribution to greenhouse gases and so on. Are health and climate the two most obvious ways that food relates to kind of bigger public policy? Hmm. I think those are the two most obvious, but I think, I think you can look at everything through a, a food lens if you will. And that is because, as you say, it unites us all. It is something that we partake in, hopefully, daily. But yes, climate, particularly with an increasingly uncertain climate, food insecurity is becoming an alarming issue for for everyone. And there are some concerted efforts, obviously, to, to try and counter that, which is exciting. And yes, our health issue. I mean, we, we're living in a time where we have a large percentage of the population who are severely malnutrition, and then a huge percentage of the population who are overweight and obese, and, and uh, it's a very strange situation to be in. It's not distributed evenly, obviously. And are there ways that food security is a risk that we might not think? Because I think if people think about you know, areas which are known to suffer from drought mm-hmm. um, and therefore it being hard to supply a regular supply of food are there ways that actually food insecurity looms in in kind of more developed circumstances yeah well one of the things around food fraud is that we get lots of our spices for instance in the developed world we're getting lots of our spices and olive oils and some of these like high-end products from developing countries who are sitting at the edge of climate change and so they are most vulnerable And when you have uncertainty in the yield, the crop yields that you're going to get with climate change, then you have a motive for food fraud. So that's going to inevitably um, affect people in the developed countries. So, What does food fraud look like? Ah, well, (laughs) so saffron, for instance, is a classic example where it's a specific uh, part of a crocus that we pay a lot of money to get. It's really hard to harvest. Um, So everything from meat threads to bits of cotton and all sorts of things have been used to try and replicate saffron. So it's it's presenting something as being something that it's not. Okay, and one of the things we do on this podcast is kind of look at how technology might affect politics in the future. Mm -hmm. Um, And food, I think, plays into that. But my sense would be that people don't really make decisions about how they vote based on things to do with food so food doesn't feel kind of it's not a ballot box issue i would have said would you agree with that no i would agree with that yeah um but then having looked at your book and read the large majority it struck me that actually thinking about the interaction of technology and food Mm -hmm. food's been interacting with technology for as long as people have had tools yeah absolutely so 
right from the moment we tamed fire, we were affecting food. And, and as technology grew, then that changed the way we could handle food, obviously, and, and keep it for longer. And, and, you know, shifting to an agricultural civilization, then you suddenly were able to keep your crops, what you harvested for longer, etc., produce different foods so yeah we have been i mean we've been making cheese for nine thousand years potentially so it's been a long long time the main motive around the book was that initially when i started to write it i thought oh this is going to be another exposure on the food industry there's so many legal things that we do to food that people don't know about but then as i started to research it more and i really realized that in fact there's this other aspect And if we don't start to have a rational conversation about our food, processed food, then we are going to leave all of the research and development to the food manufacturers, those who are motivated by profits. If we continually have headlines in the media that say processed food is awful, avoided at all costs, we can keep saying that, but that's not the reality. We're eating more and more of it. So let's be pragmatic about this and you know governments should be spending money on developing technologies and finding ways to do the things that we care about so combat climate change to make food more equitable give greater access to food so those sort of things not profits necessarily and so when we say we've been processing food for a very long time Mm. what have been in the kind of we look at the 20th century um, what were the main advances in food processing um, in, in kind of recent memory? Um, well, I mean, we had already started canning food, but it became cheaper and more available. So before the 20th century, it was very rare to see tinned goods in people's cupboards. So that was one of the things that definitely became mainstream in the 20th century. Um, we had a couple of rather large wars, which had all sorts of implications. Suddenly women and uh, young, well, young women were leaving the household to go and take work elsewhere. And so suddenly we had an, also a demand for convenience. So there was, that, that was part of the reason why more tinned goods came into, into households. Um, microwaves that changed things refrigeration became more common in the households you know cookers all of those things so those were all things that made things much more convenient in the households but I would say that some of the main things were the huge advances in technology that allowed us to isolate the things that make food taste good Suddenly we had the scientific equipment to say, okay, it's this compound, it's this amino acid that is making, giving cheese this mature flavor. So suddenly we could say, okay, great, let's produce that and put it in without having to go through all of this, this uh, time process that's required to age something. So I think that was one of the major things that has happened in the 20th century. And... You talk in your book about some of the sort of staple foods, so the changes that we've made to how we create bread mm-hmm. at a mass scale, um, how we create cheese, particularly bagged salad, which I found quite interesting because I get I get infuriated by how quickly it goes off in the fridge. Yeah. Um, so things do seem to be, but but the sense that I got from reading what you'd written was that none of this felt as scary as sometimes the concept of processed food is made out to be. 
Oh, yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, I'm not saying my my ethics and what's in line with my values is going to be different to everybody else's. But so, you know, we add enzymes and we add specific bacterial cultures to milk in order to create cheese and to speed the process up a little bit. Uh, we add amino acids to, to produce flavors faster than, than they otherwise would be. So it's all the same things. We've just added them rather than letting the, the little bugs do it, right? So, I mean, is that okay with your value system is one of the questions. And faced with not having a flour wrap one morning, I, I decide to make my own because I make my own bread. Um, and by noon, it was... A, I mean, you could have scraped paint off of a wall with it. It was tough as nails. So I looked into what it is in, in our commercial wraps that make them so soft and pliable. And it's, it's something called a humectant, which sounds terrifying, but it is just a molecule that attracts water, which keeps it all pliable. And of course, the one that they use is glycerol. And, you know, there's two stories to that. This is a compound that, or a molecule that, has been used in antifreeze. It's used in making nitroglycerin, which is part of explosives. So that's a very scary story. And if the media picks up on that, you know, the element used in making explosives is in our tortilla wraps. Well, that's, you know, that's fear-mongering and scary. But it's also the backbone to every natural fat found in plants and animals. So, you know, that's a different, entirely different story. So for me, I'm okay with that. And it's about finding the values. And we're not doing a very good job of communicating what some of those processes are. And and I understand it from the perspective of the food industry. I mean, every time something comes out, it can get blown up by the media and suddenly everybody thinks it's awful and it's terrifying and we should avoid it at all costs. And so why would you want to share more of your stories and processes in that environment? But people have a right to know what's going on. So, you know, this is starting that dialogue, telling the, the two sides of the story so that we can actually hopefully start to learn more about what's going on with our food. And so that, that kind of large-scale supermarket product processing seems to be a bit more benign than perhaps people might imagine through not knowing any of the details. But then when I think about... Um, the kind of ground beef balls that you might find on a Domino's pizza, or I think about a a kind of a Bacon King burger Mm -hmm. and and processed meats and some of the stories we heard about turkey Twizzlers a few years Mm. ago and so on. There must be some areas of the processed food industry where there's things going on that we would feel much more uncomfortable with, or is that just kind of a a lack of knowledge? Oh, no, there's definitely things that are... are, It's like everything else. I mean, there's... In a recipe book, there are good recipes and there are not so healthy for you recipes, right? So you have to be discerning. So that is exactly the same with your processed food. Um, when Chris Elliott did the review after the horse meat scandal, McDonald's actually came out as one of the better um, examples. They have a long-term suppliers for their, for their beef burgers and they have very few points of contact along the way. So it's really just meat and, and you know, that's not... Necessarily, a name that we associate with being um, good, and that—that's in terms of 
food authenticity, and that's not necess- that's not the same thing, obviously, as you know. Are there cheaper ingredients being put into our food that aren't on the labels? Because that's perfectly legal if you do that. So yeah, there's instant soups that are better choices than others. There's ready meals that are better choices than others. There's ready meals that are better choices than some recipes in a recipe book. So it's a matter of being choosy. And in your experience, how closely do you, those better choices uh, relate to higher price tags? Mm, that is a good question. Well, when you start to get different additives into a product, it's because they've eliminated something. So they've pulled out some fat or animal product that is expensive. And so therefore, they need to find a way to try and replicate that same mouthfeel and texture. Um, so then they have to put cheaper alternatives in so yeah it is definitely a matter of you get what you pay for is there anything that's remarkably cheap that is remarkably nutritious that we wouldn't have thought it's that time of the year your vacation is coming up you can already hear the beach waves feel the warm breeze relax and think about work you really really want it all to work out while you're away Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. <laughs> you mean in terms of processed food? Potentially in terms of processed food, yeah. I, <laughs> that's a good question. I mean, it's funny because if we go for cheap meal, it's usually, honestly, at home, it's like carrot cut up into carrot sticks and, you know, a couple of boiled eggs. That's a really cheap meal. It's not, it takes minutes to make and it's nutritious. It's balanced, right? So you've, whether you need something that's you know, full of flavors and, and mixtures and stuff. Sometimes simple is cheap. <laughs> and so we're thinking a bit, about, thought a bit about the 20th century. When you look forward to the 21st century, what are some of the things that you can see happening in the world of processed food? <sighs> First of all, I see a real a sort of dichotomy happening. I mean, there's this slow food, farm-to-fork, you know, movement. Everybody wants to know more about their foods, and then there's this other, you know, 3D, 4D printing even technology and designer foods. So you send in your, you know, a sample of DNA and they, they shoot back something that says, actually, this is sort of what your nutrient level should be at. This is what you should be eating. We can actually 
design your food or a supplement that's perfect for you and your genome, which is kind of crazy. Um, I don't know whether I'm excited by that specifically. I'm excited to see what happens on those. I think we're going to have this strange mishmash of we're going to use some really fancy and amazing technology to revert back to some maybe older school ways. So, I mean, we're, we already know that right now there's all sorts of efforts globally going on to reintroduce heritage crops. And it's not just, you know, a matter of digging out some seeds from a seed bank and, and plunking them into the soil. It's taking the particular traits that are beneficial out of those heritage crops and and introducing them into the crops that we are using today. But I have great faith in humanity that we are going to overcome some of these amazing hurdles that we face societally and um, I don't know how we're going to do it but it's going to be a very dramatic time I think. How does one go about 3D printing food? (laughs) The first time I saw it I was in a conference in Portugal and the first idea around it was look we're trying to find ways for a Mars colony or scientists in space astronauts to have fresher food. So imagine if you could print your own pizza. So they literally create the dough and they dehydrate it into a powder, same with the tomato sauce, same with the cheese, and it's and then they reconstitute it and instead of your plastic or whatever, a resin, whatever you use in a normal 3D printer, you're using <laughs> reconstituted food products and it prints it out. Um, I don't know that I would be keen on a 3D printed pizza personally but lots of restaurants use it for creating you know chocolate um, decorations for the desserts it's a really mundane task once you know the chef has created the pattern then the printer can just plunk out a bunch of them chocolate melted chocolate is melted chocolate whether it's going through a printer or through a you know whatever they use a icing nozzle so yeah to me sure 3D print my chocolate garnish go go for it (laughs) does that sort of technology feel or that sort of processing if you like feel scalable i think that's pretty niche (laughs) but i mean i wonder whether people will one day have 3d printers in their home who knows yeah is that the is that the ready meal of the future is you just get like a set of printer cartridges that you plunk in in a program that you download and that's your meal for the night i don't know What role does nanotechnology play in the food industry? There's a number of things. So it can either be used to try and reduce things, so sugar, for instance, with much higher surface area, then you can get a lot more sweet flavor for a lot less sugar. Same with salt. So also in delivering nutrients. But I think it runs the risk of having the same scary media coverage as GMOs, for instance. It can sound really scary, But nanoparticles are in everything that we eat anyway. It's naturally in our food. So as long as, you know, we aren't messing around with that too much and um, we are honest about what we're doing with those, that technology, then I think it definitely has a role. One of the things that is one of the joys of doing this podcast is getting to talk to lots of interesting people with different perspectives. Mm. A couple of weeks ago, we were talking to... A lady called Rachel Caldercott, who's the CEO of an organisation called Dot Everyone, which is all about trying to build a fairer internet. And she said that with the internet, one of the issues we have is that everything has been made so convenient 
that mm. we don't really have to engage with what's happening beneath the surface. We're just kind of like the ice skater, just skating on the ice. Yeah. Underneath the ice, there's all this stuff going on. Um, and it, it feels to me like there might be a bit of a parallel with the food industry there. Is that fair? I think that's very fair. I think we have to be honest about how we're choosing to spend our time. So we say that we don't have time to cook, but in fact... Are we just choosing not to cook because we'd rather spend time on social media or watching television or whatever? Um, and my greatest fear around this whole trend towards convenience, in fact, is actually that we're going to lose a skill. My grandmother used to sew her own clothes. Uh, I can sew a button on, and that's pretty much the extent of my skill level. I mean, I can cook a great diversity of foods. But are you know the next generations? Are they going to lose the skill just like I've lost my so- the sewing skills? That's to me that's the most alarming thing about this trend towards convenience is just insane. <laughs> and am I a kind of ill-informed doommonger for thinking that uh, actually some of the convenience of food might be contributing to particular illnesses becoming more prevalent in society? Oh, are you referring to a recent uh, article from from Paris, perhaps? I'm not, actually. <laughs> oh, okay. Well, there's there's of course there's obviously there's lots of links. We're we're looking for the smoking gun as to why we're all fat. <laughs> Let's call it like it is. Um, and so, you know, we're looking to all sorts of things and, and all, you know, saturated fat, uh, trans fats, sugars, they've all taken their turn um, being at the end of the barrel. Highly processed or ultra processed foods are, are the latest one to be there. Uh, and they are, there are links, but it's complicated because the people who select to have more ultra processed foods have other aspects to their life choices that also might they might live higher stress lives they might you know we already know that they are on birth control you know they might smoke they might drink more all of these things so you know we know that alcohol cancer causes cancer it doesn't mean that we don't enjoy a glass of wine at the end of the week or whatever else right so it's about everything in moderation um does that answer your question? Or have I really gone off no, tangent? No, no, no. It, it, does, it does sort of answer my question. It leads to another one, which is, um, what's an ultra-processed food? Uh, the bagged salad that you referred to is is a processed food, obviously. It's been cut, it's been packaged, it's been treated, So, uh, but it wouldn't be considered a highly processed food. So ultra-processed foods would be, you know, these powdered soups that you get, some the frozen and, and um, chilled ready meals, those sorts of things. I guess, like, I would estimate 99% of the population, I haven't got a clue what any E-numbers uh, on any food package means. Yeah. Um, should that... Does that bother you? Should it bother me? Yeah, it bothers me because some of them are totally benign. I mean, uh, and then some are not. And I don't understand e-numbers either. I mean, you have to, even then once you've got the actual thing that it refers to, you then have to look it up and see what that means. So I'm being critical, but I also don't know the alternative. So it's like you need some sort of... You know, we've got we put this in it because it attracts water molecules, and we do this, and it makes it this. But that would make labels very large. <laughs> but are, are e numbers. <laughs> just thinking about it, are e numbers not a kind of regulatory cop out. There's first of all, there's things 
that don't even have to be on the label. There's processing agents that can happen that in the normal consumption of food, you wouldn't actually eat. So those don't even go on the label. For example, a coating that is keeping your apple from going rotten, you would normally wash that off when you wash your apple so it doesn't need to be declared. And then there's additives and... Those are your e-numbers, and there are re- regulations about what, whether those are allowed to be put in and whether they're considered safe. So, yeah, I don't know whether it's a regulatory cop-out. I mean, I think the U.S. is worse in that they have things that are just considered to be generally recognized as safe grass. So that's even more alarming. So if e-numbers aren't a regulatory cop-out, which may have been a strong <laughs> phrase to choose... Um, do we, have, do we have the right balance generally with regulating the food industry, particularly when it comes to labelling or processing? Uh, no, I don't think we do. If you can have some very organised crime operating within a perfectly legal framework, there's something wrong with that framework. Um, and again, I'm being critical without having the answer, and I don't know what that is. Other than food fraud... What other food crimes exist? Well, I mean, I'm specifically referring to food fraud, and, and that's essentially what food crime, for the most part, is. So, And it can run from every aspect. I mean, it can be putting things that are no longer, that are not meant for human consumption back into the human food chain, for example, So, rather than just substituting a slightly cheaper ingredient. So, um, and some of it is just, you know, someone trying to solve a problem. And, you know, it's someone who's potentially going to lose their family business as a result because they're being outdone by someone down the street. But there are also organized crime units. And if that's happening, then there's something wrong with the system. And, you know, the the horse meat scandal was a good example of that. And when we're talking about meat, obviously something some people are talking about is uh, fake meat, Mm. is the best way of putting it. Mm -hmm. Is that something that you can see gaining traction and challenging the meat industry? I think it will challenge some people's values and ethics. <laughs> yeah, I think it will. I, I think it will challenge the meat industry. I think it will challenge. I, I mean, the amount of meat that we eat is not sustainable. The fact that we have a growing middle class globally is the problem. Is a huge problem. I mean, we all eat too much meat, and there's a huge percentage of the population who's suddenly eating a way more meat. You, how do you sustain that? You just simply can't. So what are the ways around that? I mean, this is, this is one alternative, to grow it into, in test tubes. And it presents a whole new set of values and ethics that maybe people... I mean, suddenly, okay, if, a, if an animal didn't have to die for that meat, someone who is, is a vegetarian for ethical reasons, how, is this a new problem for them is this something that they might actually consider i don't know i have not no would you if it was if it was i think i probably would try it just to see yeah and the reviews i've seen have not been ideal for sure i did a visit to mit years ago and they were talking about you know ways they could exercise the meat because potentially that's the problem is is it's not getting the muscle isn't getting moved and and so then suddenly you know you're talking about whether a 3d printer is is going to be upscaled well or it's a bunch of muscle exercises is that going to be upscaled i don't know (laughs) can i ask about the sugar 
quickly. Mm. So it does seem to me, uh, from reading your book, that you are quite happy to to suggest that sugar's causing us a bit of a problem. Mm. I am because I I know from my own experience when I have had times where I've really cut a lot of sugar out of my life that when I start to eat normal foods, I'm just shocked at how sweet they are. And even just, you know, moving from Canada to here, there were things that I noticed. Curries are much sweeter here than they are in Canada, for example. And But Strongbow cider is much sweeter in Canada. It's very strange sweetness preferences. So, you know, at the beginning of the 20th century, people in the UK were eating less than, I think it was 10 kilo, around 10 kilos of sugar a year. Now we're eating 100 no, sorry, 10 pounds, 120 pounds of sugar annually each. I mean, that's a whole person of sugar. (laughs) That's enormous. Um, And it's in everything. I mean, I would add a little of uh, sugar to my tomato sauce um, just to cut the acid in tomatoes. But when you're doing that commercially, then obviously if you add a little more sugar, it's a bit more appealing. And so then you have this, well, one manufacturer is getting more sales and it's because they've upped the sugar and so the next one does it. And so suddenly you just are raising the bar, raising the bar, and everything starts to get sweeter. You know, I have a 10-year-old son and I see what people feed their children and it's just vast amounts of sugar. I confess, and this is a good way of checking if my brothers are still listening to my podcast, that uh, it's tomato ketchup that is the secret ingredient of my lasagna. <laughs> uh, and I know how much sugar's in the ketchup as well. So More I'm, than ice cream. I'm definitely at fault uh, <laughs> on that front. Just coming back to packaging, what, something that I learned uh, from reading your book was that the, the farms that big places like Tesco claim produce mm. has come from that look like rustic mm. farms with wooden barns and so on are actually just total marketing constructs is that right yeah so this is where uh, for me any form of food processing draws a line is when it becomes misleading and to me that is entirely misleading so um yeah it's absolutely just a brand it has nothing to do with the actual farm that it came from and you know that was huge in the news when it first came out and and you know there's there's so many examples of how we're being misled about our food through processing and that's that to me is what crosses my ethical line any others i think our understanding of food so that i mean people now are used to the fact that bread stays absolutely fresh on your countertop for a week sliced and it shouldn't do that <laughs> so i think it's just changing our expectations i guess is the right word and our expectation of what food how food food should behave i mean if you cut your salad leaves you know they start to wilt on the way back from the garden and uh, so expecting that your bagged salad is going to last however many kilometers it's traveled from the farm to the to where it's being processed to the um, supermarket shelf and then hopefully last long enough for you to get it into the fridge. I mean, there's all sorts of stuff that has to happen in order for that to happen. So we're a bit naive. The Parmesan story a couple of years ago was another great example where we were outraged by the fact that the cellulose was being used to keep our grated Parmesan from, from clumping together. And, of course, the media unfortunately made it sound like Parmesan manufacturers had wood chippers out back and were, were cutting down old growth forest in order to, to fill these bags of grated Parmesan. But in fact, cellulose is in every plant. I mean, it, if, if you associate it with those long stringy things in celery, that's cellulose. And it's a really good indigestible fiber that's good for 
gut health, actually. So there's an example of, well, what did you think was keeping your grated Parmesan from not sticking together or any grated cheese? So, yeah, we have a responsibility as consumers to also start to think a little bit more about our food and why it's behaving the way it is. And the less we prepare it at home ourselves, the less we'll know how it should behave. And the more we rely on processed food, then the more we'll be sort of expecting it to behave like processed food. Well, my uh, theory on celery is that it's not actually a food oh. because it takes more calories to process it than it does to eat it. And surely if food is defined by anything, it's calories gained as a result right. of digestion. Okay, well then... And it tastes disgusting oh, in well, its raw form. Can I challenge you on that? In that, if you think of your entireness with your microbiome, you're actually feeding your gut bacteria... Um, that indigestible fiber. So even though it's not necessarily great for you, it's not giving you any calories necessarily, it's keeping them happy and healthy. And they're important. I'll bear that in mind next time I'm shopping some. Um, (laughs) Just to wrap up, Nicola, if I was to grant you uh, power over the entire food industry uh, to make them make some changes, what's the kind of one thing that you would choose to insist upon to try and make our food ecosystem a better place? Transparency. Yeah. I mean, mean, there's probably a million other things, but I think that we can't deal with any of them until we have some transparency. And it's a competitive food market. How are you ever going to get that? But that would be amazing. If if you were to start with one thing you felt should be more transparent? (laughs) Everything that they do, what they're doing to our food. Yeah. Is that one thing, or is that just everything? It's, 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 plenty, it's plenty of worrying things, but it's also a good point to finish, Nicola. Thank you very much. Thank you. That's all from Government versus the Robots this week. So it turns out it's not just on the internet where it pays to take a closer look at the small print. Our next show comes from the Data for Development Festival in Bristol. We'll be talking to the Mayor of Bristol, the Head of the Office of National Statistics, and getting an intergalactic view on Government versus the Robots with a representative from NASA. Listen out, but in the meantime, if you've enjoyed this episode, as always, please do subscribe, share it, tell your friends about it, and you can find us on Twitter at Government versus the Robots. That's at G-O-V-T underscore V-S underscore Robots. 